Jesus is the unrivaled head of the church. I get this from Colossians 1, uh, 17. Let me just read this for you. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Ephesians 4 and 5 reflect essentially the exact same sentiment, the exact same words nearly. That the head of the church is to not to be a man. The head of the church is to not be a group of men. The head of the church is not to be a charismatic leader. The head of the church is Christ and Christ alone. That Jesus is the senior pastor and Jesus is the CEO and Jesus is the leader. Jesus is the one who sets the tone. Jesus is the one that charts the course. Jesus is the one that shepherds his flock. He is the chief shepherd and the best that we can be is under shepherds having been delegated to by him. him. And so this morning we remember that that's good news. That's good news. A pastor can betray you, but Jesus will never forsake you. A pastor can fail you, but Jesus' ways are perfect. A pastor's time on earth is fleeting. Perhaps his time in the church is even quicker, but Christ is the one who reigns preeminently yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Christ is is the one that steadies the ship. Preachers burn out, but Jesus' burden is light. And so this morning, realizing that any organization can never outlive the strength of its leader, we look to Christ knowing that the reason the church will be eternal and the reason the church will always prevail and the reason that the gates of hell will not prevail against us is because the strength of our leader is infinite and eternal and forever. And so this morning we continue to talk about our bylaws as a church family. We continue to, to press deeper into that and to see what that looks like. And our goal in all of it is how can we do what we do here at Iron City in a way that brings the most honor and glory to our head, Christ. So, last week we talked about the first of two offices that we find in the New Testament. The first office was that of elder, and so we spent a great deal of time, Aaron, Zach, and I, talking to you about what the New Testament says about elders and what the New Testament expects about that area of church leadership. And this week, we're going to finish up what it, these, uh, these two offices by looking at the second office, namely that of deacon. Now, the reason that I say that there are two church offices is that I get that from essentially two different passages of Scripture. Elders are talked about frequently throughout the New Testament. Deacons are talked about sparingly. It probably points to a bit of their work. It doesn't mean they're less important. The Holy Spirit is talked about much less than the Son is, but He is no less important. Amen? 
So the, though deacons are not talked about as often, they are spoken of, and they are spoken of in this official sense. So the two passages that I would have in my mind would first be Philippians chapter 1. You don't have to turn there. Philippians chapter 1 is simply what we see in verse 1 is an introduction of Paul to the church at Philippi. And he says, hey to the congregation, hey to the elders, hey to the deacons. So he's lumping them in with the elders as being a set-aside office. The second passage is the one that I would have you to turn to this morning. And that would be in 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3. All the T's in your New Testament are together. And this is the second half of what uh, Zach talked about last Sunday. So what you have is you have Paul laying out the way the church is going to look and the way the leaders are going to be and who they are going to be. And so first, Paul, in the first seven verses, talks about that, those elders, overseers, and then immediately after that, in the next few verses, he talks about the office of deacon and the qualifications of deacon. So let's read that together. If you would, stand with me as we read God's word together. We'll begin in verse 8 this morning. So that's 1 Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse 8. Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And let them also be tested first, that then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his word this morning. So we have here Paul moving through, the, having just spoken of the qualifications to be an elder, moving into the qualifications of being a deacon. Now, what we should see about the qualifications of both elder and deacon is that they are neither exhaustive nor exclusive. In other words, when we see Paul talking about the qualifications of an elder or the qualifications of a, de of a, of a deacon, here primarily focused on the moral, ethical, and spiritual side of life, we should not see this as a maximum, but as a minimum. That Paul certainly would have had in his mind many more things than this, but these are just those that he wrote down. And so when we are looking to affirm elders and when we are looking to nominate and elect deacons, we will look for men that have these, these qualifications certainly, but then even more than these. We want to see them active in the life of the church. And so we see them as not being exhaustive and we do not see them as being exclusive to one office or the other. In other words, you'll notice that when you lay the two qualifications side by side that there's a lot of striking similarities between them. But there are differences. But just because something is spoken, spoken to an elder does not mean that it does not apply to a deacon. And just because something is spoken exclusively to a deacon does not mean necessarily that it applies to an, ethical, uh, to a, to an elder. And I'm, I'm speaking mostly in the qualifications that speak to morality and ethics and spirituality. So when, we, when Paul tells the elders that they must be above reproach, a deacon too must be above reproach. Those should be applied to each of them. When Paul, in verse 11, tells the deacons that their wives must be dignified, then it too must be understood that the wife of an elder should be dignified. That the qualifications, when we're speaking morally and ethically and spiritually, they are not exclusive to the office, but instead come together and give us understandings for both of them. 
In fact, these don't pertain to merely the offices at all. These are the qualifications. These are the behaviors. These are the standards that we should see in the life of every Christian in the church. Every Christian in the church. That the offices of the church are not to be set aside super Christians and then everybody else just kind of doing whatever and having a bare minimum. No, these are what it should look like in the life of every single Christian. Think about what Paul could be describing. Perhaps aside from the things about marriage, everything else that Paul has said could have been said about Jesus. Jesus is our standard. Jesus is the standard of the elder. Jesus is the standard of the deacon. Jesus is the standard of the teenager and the child who follow after Jesus. All of them are the same. They are universally applied and should be universally true of every single Christian. That we should look and see that we live lives that are above reproach. We should look and see that we live lives that are respectable and dignified and not double-tongued. We should see these realities in our own lives. They are not intended to be exceptional of the leaders, but the standard in the church. The truth is, is if we read these qualifications, they are exceptional in our world, aren't they? We don't see a lot of integrity in our world, do we? We don't see a lot of forthrightness in our world, do we? We don't see a lot of sober-mindedness in our world, do we? We don't see a lot of marital fidelity in our world, do we? But that which is extraordinary in the world, that which is exceptional in the world, should be standard in the church. Integrity may be exceptional in the world, but it should be standard in the church. Marital fidelity may be exceptional in the world, but it should be the standard in the church. Sober-mindedness may be the exception in the world, but it should be the standard in the church. When we look at the things that Paul is talking about, we are not looking at those things that are super-Christian or a whole other level of spirituality. Instead, what we see is what should be true of every spirit-dwelt, Christ-redeemed Christian. So lay your life beside these qualifications. Lay your life beside these things. Are they true of you? Are they true of you? If these things could be used to describe Christ, and Christ is the one to whom you are conforming your life to, and in the one in whom the Spirit is conforming your life to, when you lay your life beside these things, do you see any of them? And do you see areas where perhaps they're lacking? I would say if you don't see any of them, then you do not know Christ. And you are not following Christ. And you need to repent this morning and be saved. But if you're a Christian, and you see these areas where these things are not true of you. Where these things would be the exception in your life, not the standard in your life. Then I call you to repentance, to gospel repentance. To pursue a life that is faithful. If we were to look and we were to look at the qualifications of the deacons and the way that they're worded specifically, we might say that the general theme of the qualifications that to be a deacon is that around integrity, right? Paul says that a deacon should not be double-tongued. What does it mean to be double-tongued? It means that I go and I tell this side of the room one thing, and then when it's more appropriate, I go to this room and tell them something else. 
that I say different things to different people when I think it'll be more popular in that moment, when I think it will be more appropriate in that moment. In other words, I live my life as a people pleaser, valuing their opinion of me more than valuing my integrity. Paul says that they should not be in it for dishonest gain. It's most likely that in the early church, and the church in Ephesus to which he's writing this particular letter, that the deacons were the primary uh, managers of the money in the church. They took care of the financial responsibilities of the church, and they took in the resources that were given to the church. And remember, in this day, people are selling everything, right? They're, they're selling their property, and they're selling their homes, and they're giving all of it to the church. And, then make, and then, So it would have been the responsibility of the deacons to then disperse that appropriately to the other brothers and sisters in benevolence to make sure that everyone's needs were being met. And so what Paul is saying, when he says, don't do this for dishonest gain... He's saying, number one, if you're going to take in and manage the sacrificial gifts of others, then you too should be a sacrificial giver, right? And as it comes in, you have to be trustworthy with it. We have to know that when we give you money, when we give you the money of a widow that has sacrificed so much to have it, that when we give you the money of a, of a farmer who's labored and labored and labored so that he might have it, when he gives his offerings, we've got to know that it's taken care of. We've got to know that we can trust these men. So you must not be a man of dishonest gain. Then he says that, we should, that a deacon should hold to the mysteries of the faith with a clear conscience. What is he talking about? The mysteries of the faith is just Paul speak for the gospel. Throughout his epistles, he, uh, he uses those interchangeably. He talks about this mystery because it is beyond comprehension, the gospel. And so whenever he's talking about the mystery, he's talking about the gospel. He's saying, you should live out the gospel in your life with a clear conscience. In other words, what is he saying? You shouldn't be a hypocrite. That you should live the way that you believe. That your life and your words should be the same. That your, you, what you believe in your heart about the gospel and what you know to be true about Jesus should work its way out into your life so that the way you live allows your conscience to be utterly clear. All of us know what it's like to have a bound conscience, don't we? All of us know when we, do, when we know what we should do and yet we don't do it or we know what we shouldn't do and we do it anyway. And when, we, when that happens and there's this, this, uh, this fracture in what we believe and what we do, our conscience is violated, isn't it? And so what is Paul saying? That a deacon should be a man of faith with integrity. So what do we do? How do we make sure? He says you should test them. Test them. A deacon should be tested to make sure that he's a man of integrity. To make sure that he is a man of faith. He should be proven in the church, known in the church as being a man that is reliable and trustworthy and consistent. That he is a man that whenever people speak of him, they know he's not perfect, but they would say that is an honorable man of character. That is an honorable man of faith. I had a pastor tell me one time, early in my ministry, something that's always stuck with me. He said, a deacon is a deacon long before he is a deacon. 
And there's a lot of truth in that, right? That the things that we're talking about here are not spiritual gifts. You notice that? The things that we're talking about in the life of a deacon, the qualifications of a deacon, are not specific to gifting. They're not specific to ability. They're not specific to age. He never mentions that. None of them. Now, I do believe that the Lord, supernaturally, through His Spirit, gives gifts of service. I believe that. But that is not in view here. Now, what's in view here is character, not charisma. What's in view here is not who is most able, but who is most qualified. That the church does not have the responsibility to put the most able men in these positions. That's shocking, isn't it? The church does not have the responsibility to put the most prominent men in these positions, or the most popular men in these positions, but the most proven men in these positions. Men whose character is known, whose honor is renowned. Throughout the congregation, throughout the body. So I ask you, even now, test, test them. Think about men that you know. Think about the, the people that you know that are living lives of faith. Now think about your own life. What if someone's running you through that test? Jesus says you'll know them by their fruits. It's not, not being judgmental. It's being truthful. It's being honest, making an assessment. I'm not talking about whether or not you're charismatic. I'm not talking about whether you're prominent in the congregation. I'm saying, are you proven? Are you faithful? Are you a person of high character and integrity? Are you a person that holds to the mysteries of the faith with a clear conscience? Test yourself. Test yourself to make sure that you're in the faith. And then for those of you that are, test yourselves to make sure that these things are coming true in your life. So the first question I wanted us to address is what should a deacon look like? And this is what a deacon should look like. A man proven. A man of character. A man of integrity. A man that is, is uh, exceptional in the world, but standard in the church. But now let's shift gears a little bit and let's talk about what a deacon does? What is the function of a deacon? What does a, a deacon do day in and day out? And the first way that I want us to start by is by talking about what they don't do and who they are not. And I think we see that here in 1 Timothy chapter 3. If we look back to what Zach talked about uh, last week, I think in his discussion about elders and, the, and what Paul has written about elders, we see Two things that are mentioned, two noticeable omissions when he gets to deacons. Two things that talk not about something moral, not about something ethical, not about something spiritual, but about something functional. And so there are functional omissions that I think give us insight into who an elder is versus who an, a deacon is not. Now the first one you'll see at the very end of verse 2. The very end of verse 2 in chapter 3. It says, able to teach. Able to teach. That an elder must be able to teach. They must be able to rightly divide the word. They must be in, have sound doctrine and develop theology. That they might be able to identify the heresies in the church. That they might be able to stand in the pulpit and exposit the scriptures and tell you what they say. And call you to response. That they are to be your leaders in the macro sense, in the big picture sense. And the way that God designed his church to be led is primarily through the preached word in the pulpit. 
And so he gives this qualification to, el- this qualification to elders and not to deacons. Now, this is important because think about what James says about teachers. In James chapter 3, verse 1, it says what? Not many, not many should aim to be teachers, right? Not many should be aim. Why? Because they will give a greater account. They will be held accountable for what they teach. That when they stand before the judgment seat of Christ himself, not only will they give account of themselves, but they will give an account for all of those that they have shepherded. They will give an account for all of those whose doctrine and theology and understanding of the word, revealed word of God, how all of that has been developed in the lives of their hearers. And so what we see Paul doing in the life of a deacon is releasing him from that. Releasing him from that. Setting him free from that. He's setting him free from this burden, this responsibility of teaching, from this accountability that comes from the preached word. And setting him free to do what he is intended to do. Setting him free from responsibility that he is not gifted to do, not equipped to do, not prepared to do, not supposed to do. Setting him free from that to do that which allows him to be the greatest benefit to the body. The greatest benefit to the kingdom of God. The other difference we see in verse 4. In verse 4 it says, He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household well, how will he care for God's church? Now, in discussion about the deacons, Paul does mention the household, doesn't he? He mentions it in verse 12. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children children in their own households well. But what does he leave off? He leaves off the next clause, doesn't he? He leaves off the clause that says that if they manage their household that well, they will manage their, uh, the church well. That if they show good oversight in the home, they will then as a result show good oversight in the church. Or he actually, he actually says it in the negative. If they don't do this well in their home, they won't do this well in the church. But he leaves this off when it comes to deacons. Why? It is not the responsibility, it is not in the purview of the New Testament deacon to have oversight over the church. That is the responsibility of the elders. That is the responsibility of those that God has equipped and, uh, and called to the pulpit and called to teach and to divide the word and to defend the flock and to guard the flock from the wolves. And so he leaves this off because, again, he's speaking to the function of the deacon. We had what was a profound moment for me when we were going through all this process with the bylaws and we were talking about it uh, as a deacon with the deacon body. One of the deacons there said that he... As all this was going, he went through the whole New Testament searching to see what authority it gave to a deacon. And he said that his study caused him to come to the conclusion that it didn't give him any. That it didn't give him any. That you will not find one New Testament passage that gives the authority, responsibility, or oversight of the church to the deacons, to the office of deacon. It just does not exist. It's a completely different paradigm than, than most of us have seen. It, it's, it's flipping it upside down a little bit, right? But if we go to the scriptures and that is our standard, if we go to the scriptures and that is our goal, this is what it says. 
That, we, we, that, that the church is not governed by a Congress, by a bicameral Congress with equal authority that both kind of rule collectively together. Instead, the church is governed by a group of elders in authority and a deacons who are serving that are, are partnership in a cooperative, uh, complementary partnership with one another that allows both to be set free to do what they do well. I'm excited about our church wrapping our minds around this. I'm excited about us understanding what a deacon isn't. And here's why I'm excited about it. This understanding of deacon is going to set free so many men and enable so many men and empower so many men to be deacons who, could have, who would have never been a deacon otherwise. Over the course of my ministry, I cannot tell you how many honorable men have been approached about being a deacon who are serving faithfully in the church, who are doing God's work, who are doing remarkable, displaying remarkable faithfulness and integrity and honor and character. And you go to them and say, oh, would, you, would you be willing to be a deacon? Well, I just, I don't want to get in the middle of all the conflict, right? Or, 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 I, don't, or I don't want to get, I, I, I don't really know, the, I don't really have the theology that you're talking about. Or, or maybe they're really uncomfortable with the, the process of church discipline. Or they're just not really, no, don't really know how to articulate them well, them, themselves wet, well. And so when it comes to oversight, like they just see that and that would make them miserable. Or when they think about teaching, that would make them miserable. This, this governing responsibility makes them miserable. But, but if you can set them free to serve, if you can set them free to work, they're already doing that anyway. Understanding deacons the way the New Testament understands deacons allows us to call so many more men and to honor so many of you who have faithfully year after year after year served this body. It allows us to honor you in the way that Paul talks about in verse 13. It allows us to elevate you and to acknowledge this is a man that has proven himself. This is a man that has lived out the faith. This is a man that is honorable. And it's a, it allows us to give you the office that you should hold inside of our church. And the way that our bylaws are written, frankly, new, we're going to have to have a much more expansive deacon ministry anyway. We're going to need more of you. And so this enables the, the deepening of the pool the way it should have always been. To put the right men in the right positions. But understanding what they are not, I want us to flip over to Acts 6, Acts 6 and see what they do in the positive sense. Now, when we come to Acts chapter 6, we're stepping right into the middle of a church conflict, okay? We're, we're, we're stepping right into the middle of a time in the church where it's just, it's just not a lot of fun in the church right now, okay? The church has grown exponentially. And guess what? More people, more problems. Amen? More sinners, more sin. Right? Like that's just how it happens. The bigger the church gets, the more problems exist in the church. Because there are more of these little things called sinners there. So this is happening in the church. And in the church, in the early church, there were just all kinds of dynamics that were working together. And so what you had is you had so many people had been reached with the gospel. And you have what is largely a Jewish congregation, and now there is a divide among the Jewish congregation. So you have the widows that are Jewish but speak Greek, and you have the widows that are Jewish but speak Hebrew. Well, the ones who speak Hebrew, which is the original language of the Jewish people, are giving, being given prefer, preferential treatment over those who speak Greek. 
And so the widows that speak Hebrew are getting everything that they need and then some. And those that speak Greek are kind of being left out. And the apostles, it's just too big for them to keep up with. They don't really know. And so what the apostles find themselves in the midst of is they find themselves in the midst of this conflict and not really sure how to deal with it, how to organize it, how to get through it. And so now it's kind of taking and draining all of their energy, sapping all of their emotional energy and all the energy that they need to continue evangelizing the world and spreading the gospel. And so they come to a solution in Acts chapter 6. We'll begin in verse 1 together. Now in these, de- in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the d- daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full, the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom. Remember? Integrity, right? Integrity, godliness, that's the picture here again. Full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, and a proselyte of Antioch. Man, you just got to get your heart right when you read those words. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. So their idea was, in the midst of this conflict, that they would call out seven men. That the church would come together and they would find men of good repute, men who were wise men, men who were filled with the Holy Spirit. And they would call them out and charge them with the responsibility of taking care of the neglected widows, of serving the tables. And this would enable the apostles to go about their apostolic ministry of preaching and praying and spreading the gospel to the ends of the earth. Now as an aside, I do think we see something about the difference in a call of an elder and a call of a deacon there. And our, and our Bibles are structured this way, so this is why I pointed out, is that throughout the New Testament, what we see about the call of an elder, the one called to the pastorate, what we see is, is they are given an inward desire. Remember, verse, uh, 1 Timothy 3.1 talks about that. They aspire for the office, and they have an inward desire. We see God calling them out. God placing this desire in their heart. But deacons we might think of as not being necessarily God-called, which certainly they are in the, in the big-picture sense, but as being church-called. As these being men who are set aside by the church in recognition of their faithfulness, in recognition of their wisdom, in recognition of their leadership. And so we see that here. So I think we can think about the office of deacon, the work of a deacon in, in two different realms. The first responsibility of a deacon is to be the lead servant. To be the lead servant. The word deacon literally means serve. To be a servant. If you go throughout the New Testament and you were to use the, look at the word group, and you have a, a, a verb form of it and you have a noun form of it, you have the, the verb form of it here in verse uh, chapter 6, verse 2, when it says to serve tables. That is the word that translates to deacon, right? Diacon. 
So if you were to go throughout the, the New Testament and you were to do a word search or a word study about what these words mean, what you would find is almost without exception that this servant or service is always in, con- in the context of, of everyday mundane service. Like it's serving widows, it's serving with money, it's, it's taking care of the least of these, it's, it's, caring, it's, it's mercy ministry, it's, it's benevolence ministry. That if you were to go out and you were, to, you were to look every single instance that a word from this word group is used, it's always used in regards to this type of service. This defines the work of a deacon. They are the servants in the church. But they are not just, the ser- uh, they're not just a servant, they're the lead service. They set the pace of service. They are those that, that take the words of the elders and help make sure they're being put into action. They are the ones that holds the church accountable to going out and serving in the community and, and getting the work done in the church. They are the ones that oversee and make sure that all the needs are being met and the people are being taken care of. That doesn't mean nobody else does it. It doesn't mean that the elders don't do it. They should do it. They are shepherds. They should smell like sheep. Your elders should always smell like sheep. But it means that that's not their primary area of leadership. This is the primary area of leadership for the deacons. Now maybe you you hear that and you would say, Just a servant? Just a servant? Is a deacon just a servant? Brothers and sisters in the Christian faith, there is no such thing as just a servant. There there is no menial servanthood at the cross. Our Savior himself came not to be served, but to serve. Our Savior is the one who emptied himself. And for us to embrace the cross is to embrace servanthood, a life of servanthood, all of us. There is no such thing as just a servant. It is to be like Christ himself. In fact, Jesus says that those in his kingdom, in his kingdom that the least will be the greatest and the greatest will be least, that in his kingdom servants are elevated. Deacon is not a lowly position in the eyes of God. It may be in the eyes of the world. It may even be to some carnal Christian church member. But it is not a lowly position in the eyes of God in the kingdom where the scales are flipped upside down and the least are greatest and the greatest are least. Instead, it is an opportunity to live out a cross-centered, Christ-centered life where you take up your cross day after day after day. Brothers and sisters, whether you think you're a deacon or not, I ask you, are you willing to just be a servant? Are you willing to just be a servant? That reveals something about your heart. Are you willing to be the kind of Christian that embraces the cross and takes hold of the cross? And says, Jesus, whatever it looks like, wherever it takes me, whatever it costs me, I will do that. So we see them as lead servants, and then we see them as lead unifiers. Lead unifiers. They are serving to what end? They are serving to the end of the unity in the church. And the peacemake, and, and, and to make peace in the church. That perhaps the most important skill in the life of a deacon is, to make, is the skill of peacemaking. 
To be that which sees a place of disunity, to see a place of conflict, and to go in the midst of it, and to minister to them, and to care for them, and to take care of the needs, so that unity is preserved. You know, Tony Snyder, he put it this way one time. He said that he was trying to figure out what a deacon was supposed to look like, because he had, he had been serving as a deacon for a number of years, and he was reading through Acts chapter 6, and he said he finally realized that what a deacon was, that the main job of a deacon was to put out fires. You know, there's a lot of truth in that. You see, what makes the church so incredible is that it's filled with sinners. And what makes the church so difficult is that it's filled with sinners. That God, in his great love and mercy, looked down at us, and with all of our baggage, and with all of our issues, and with all of our bent towards sin, all of our rebellion against him, he looked at us and said, I'm going to use you as a living stone to build my church. But all of us come together with baggage, don't we? All of us come together with past. All of us come together with buttons that are easily pushed. All of us come with skeletons in the closet. All of us come with, with favoritism and preferential treatment as we see in Acts 6. All of us come with this kind of baggage and we bring it to the table. And it is the responsibility of the deacons to help bring together the church, to help overcome the church, to be the leader in the unity, the leaders in the unity of the church. One guy said it like this, that, that deacons function like shock absorbers. That the deacons hear and they feel the complaints and they hear and they feel the confusion and the, and the conflict and they kind of get in the middle of it and they absorb the shock. So that the elders are free to lead and to have oversight and to, to preach the word and to study the word and to pray and seek the face of God. This is the kind of deacons that we need. This is the kind of deacons that we need if we're going to press on and we're going to bring our head, Christ, the most amount of glory. We need deacons who take seriously the task of serving and seriously the task of peacemaking to come together. That our, our body might be woven together with the strong threads of the gospel. Russell Moore, who is the president of the Southern Baptist Convention's ERLC, said it this way. He said, we have a generation of Southern Baptists today that are more likely to see an unfrozen caveman in their church than a biblically functioning deacon. May it not be said of us, Iron City. May it not be said of us. Let us pray. Heavenly Father,